0: Welcome to Forward, the podcast where we always check under the bed for monsters because they're scared of the dark too. I'm your host, Allison Innes, and each episode I bring you a conversation with one of our researchers from Brock University's Faculty of Humanities. Today's guest is one of our newest faculty members. We're very pleased to have Sarah Stang, Assistant Professor with the Centre for Digital Humanities, on the pod today. Sarah hopes to use her new role as assistant professor to help equip game design students with the knowledge they need to make gaming more diverse. And as a feminist media scholar, she uses her background in film studies to understand how the representation of people in video games has real implications for society. Her PhD in Communication and Culture at York University focused on the representation of women and marginalized identities in game content. She's particularly interested in how monsters are depicted, voiced and described in game content, as well as the ways in which they are allowed to interact with the hero. So this is going to be a good conversation. Welcome, Sarah.
1: Thank you so much, Allison. I'm happy to be here.
0: It's a pleasure to have you. So to get us started, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about how you got into the world of game and game studies um, as an academic area.
1: Yeah, it was a bit of a roundabout journey, as I think it is for a lot of game scholars. Um, So I was doing my master's in film studies. That was sort of where my passion was uh, visual media in general. Um, But I already was starting to have a little bit of an interest in um, villainy and evil and criminality and that kind of thing. I was doing uh, work on the outlaw and the villain and the criminal and the mob boss, the mobster, that kind of figure. And I was taking a bunch of film studies courses, of course. And in every single class, I would bring up video games as an example. Uh, I was the only gamer in my graduate seminars, and my professors didn't play games either. And so they would talk about films, and I'd be like, oh, I've played this game that actually like, fits that example or that theory or that framework really, really well. And all my you know, peers and, and professors were really interested in this because it's something they hadn't really ever thought about. And the more I sort of was doing this, one of my professors came to me after class and was like, Sarah, why are you studying film instead of video games? Like, you clearly talk about video games more than you talk about film. And that got me thinking, because sure enough, my hobby has always been gaming. I've been playing video games since I was five. uh, And so you know, I do love watching films, obviously, watching television, uh, reading comic books, reading books, all sorts of things. But when push comes to shove, when I get home at the end of the day, I would rather play a video game than watch a movie if I had to choose. And so yeah, that got me thinking. And so I talked to him privately a couple of times, and he really encouraged me to switch my topic for my master's thesis away from looking at sort of cinematic outlaws uh, in 1930s films. So I was looking at like the swashbuckler and the mobster, um, that kind of thing, and into switching into video games. And it was an interesting journey for me in film studies because no one in the department at York knew anything about games. Uh, they were all very supportive and encouraging me and very excited about the topic, but they didn't know anything about them. So I managed to find some people uh, to supervise the thesis, including this professor who had encouraged me to switch. But it was a very like choose your own adventure, so to speak. I guided myself in learning all about game studies, which as it turns out, I've learned since happens a lot, especially at the master's level when people sort of first realize that games are a thing you can study. And a lot of the time you're sort of blown away, like I can study a thing I actually love right? And of course, I love film, but there's just something about games that gives them this extra element of of excitement for me.
0: You've kind of touched a little bit on this, but I was wondering if you could kind of tease out a little bit more for me some of the similarities or crossovers between studying something like film and popular culture and, and video games.
1: Yeah, there are a lot of similarities. In fact, I found that the methodological and analytical toolkit I developed in my film studies master's was very, very useful for looking at video games as audiovisual media. Obviously, there is this extra element of interactivity, not to mention the fact that video games tend to be a bit more long form. So in some ways, a bit more comparable to television in that a film you can sit down and watch in two to four hours (laughs) at the extreme, whereas a video game can sometimes take upwards of a 100 hours depending on on the game and all the content. Uh, So you really have to be willing to commit the time and you can't necessarily play through it again and again and again the way you could watch a film again and again. Uh, So you really have to Pay attention the first time you're playing, which kind of changes how your brain sort of concentrates as you're playing, uh, which I found really valuable as someone who has gaming as a hobby because realizing I could study it critically really changed the way I approach games, even ones I wasn't studying, but ones I was just playing for fun. So now I can't take off my critical scholar hat when I play, which is very typical of anyone who studies any kind of entertainment media. Um, So I'm always critical. Um, And as a feminist scholar, I'm always a critical feminist. And in games that can be sort of rage inducing periodically, but, uh, but also gives me hope sometimes. And I'll talk about that probably a bit later. But since they are both audiovisual media, a lot of the things that we've learned, the lessons we've learned and the methods we've learned in film do translate very well to games. Also, because a lot of games, especially big budget triple A games, tend to try to be cinematic. They make cutscenes that are done in a way um, using the camera and lighting and cinematography in a way that kind of mimics film. And a lot of people who have backgrounds in filmmaking turn to games. And so uh, it, it was a really natural transition, actually. The element of interactivity always throws a wrench in the works. For better or worse, a lot of games, a lot of game scholars and game developers, players, critics, etc., really get very excited about the concept of interactivity and really applaud games as this interactive medium and the future of storytelling and offering players agency and all this stuff. But actually, when you're making a game, having to cater to player choice can make it challenging to tell a compelling story and tell a story in the way you want. The way that, say, a director has complete control over what they're making or an author has complete control over the story they're telling. So it actually can be a challenge, especially because sometimes if you don't offer enough interactivity, your player base gets angry that they didn't have power uh, or or their options ended up being meaningless. We've seen that play out several times in game fandom. Or on the flip side, offering too much interactivity actually takes away from the experience or you start biting off more than you can chew as a game developer and offering too many scenarios and too many options and it gets just out of hand, especially if you're making a smaller project. So it's actually a challenge for for telling a compelling story. And that's something I do focus on in my work as well, not just questions of representation and diversity, but also questions of what does interactivity mean as a concept? Um, It's notoriously underdefined and overused. And also, what does it mean for storytelling? And that was something I developed out of film as like, okay, this is the key element that's different. I'm going to really focus on this as I transition to video games. And that was very valuable.
0: Lots of great ideas there that I want to come back to, um, and in particular, um, what you were saying about agency, because I know that uh, plays in with with monsters and looking at monsters. I was just wondering for those in our audience who are gamers, what what games specifically have you looked at either in your PhD or more recently?
1: A lot. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: mean, it doesn't have to be the comprehensive list, but maybe some of the highlights.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So. I've looked at, in terms of representation, I do tend to focus on gender, so I spent a while looking at uh, parenthood in games. So just I'll I'll build up to monstrosity, which is my main focus. So I've looked at fatherhood and motherhood in games. And I specifically focused on the Walking Dead series, which I really, really love. And I also usually get my students to play it um, because it's very interesting for this question of choice and agency, because the majority of the gameplay in those games are, are players making choices about what their character is doing. But they also tell interesting stories about what it means to... Um, have a family and be a parent, uh, adoptive parent in uh, a post-apocalyptic world. And then I've also uh, talked a lot about questions of um, adaptation and um, how to do transmedia storytelling in various games. Uh, When it comes to fatherhood, I've also talked about problematic fatherhood in games like The Last of Us or Bioshock Infinite. And that did kind of bring me to monsters, because in a lot of ways, um, what you're doing when you're playing as these heroic but ultra-violent characters, usually male characters, is you're often killing monsters. And those monsters are often and this happens in film as well some of the more interesting quote unquote characters in the story so it might not be that interesting when you're just gunning down or or slaying countless swarms of monsters but often the boss fights that you come to when you're playing these games the big the ones that have the big build up and all the tension and all the atmosphere and you spend you know a whole bunch of time fighting and maybe you get killed and you have to try again and again, they're honestly the most compelling aspect of a lot of these kinds of games, especially in fantasy, sci-fi, and horror games, which tend to be the ones I focus on because I'm really into speculative fiction myself. And so I started getting fascinated by the idea of the monster. And again, this probably came out of my fascination with like the criminal and the villain and the pirate and the outlaw. Realizing also that the way the monsters were physically designed was particularly interesting. Again, coming from this visual analysis background, especially from feminist film studies, where already there's a a decent body of work, body of scholarship, focusing on monstrosity in horror film, especially looking at the physicality of the monsters, how they're designed and how they're uh, represented in the film, I realized there are a lot of games that have the same kind of thing going on, especially in relation to gender, which was something that really interested me. And so I started trying my hand in various uh, publications and now analyzing these female monsters, uh, monsters presented as and encoded as and received as female. And I realized that a lot of those same patterns that film scholars had been critiquing in the 80s were repeating even in contemporary games. So unsurprisingly, that feminist film scholarship wasn't trickling into the game industry. Uh, Game designers perhaps weren't getting exposed to this kind of critical scholarship the way that many filmmakers get exposed to it when they're going through their film program. And this is what led me to my dissertation topic. I knew that I wanted to do it on games, of course, and I knew that I wanted to do it on questions of of representation and diversity. I originally wanted to talk about every aspect of diversity, and I realized that's just biting off way more than I can chew. So, I decided to narrow down on gender, and uh, it brought me naturally to my my main area of interest, which was villainy and monstrosity. So in that dissertation, I originally analyzed a lot of games as i mentioned i've I've sort of always bitten off more than I can chew like many academics, and my supervisor fortunately was like, "Okay, this is too much. <laughs> you can save all these other all these other games for something else. You need to pick the ones that really, really speak to your argument." And my argument in my dissertation was that female monsters in especially science fiction and fantasy games are designed in a way that tend to remediate and reinforce misogynistic ideologies, especially hatred and disgust for transgressive female bodies, uh, non-normative female bodies and behaviors um, when it comes to especially sexual behaviors and so i picked the games that were i guess the worst examples of this maybe you could even say the juiciest examples of this because the monsters in those games are quite um are designed to be repulsive are designed to be horrifying terrifying But when you actually look at them through this critical lens, they are representing everything in society that we tend to push away and to ostracize and to hate, such as pregnant bodies, maternal bodies, fat bodies, old bodies, uh, sexually liberated bodies. And so looking at these monsters, I focused on games in fantasy and sci-fi specifically because there already was some work in horror, uh, which has this kind of thing a lot. And so I wanted to look at something that hadn't been touched on. And the way that monstrous bodies, um, monstrous characters and creatures and behaviors and desires are portrayed in science fiction and fantasy, it's a bit different than horror because horror, the idea uh, is the monster is central. It's some kind of being that comes about in a way that is unnatural and it's unwelcome. So it's not supposed to be there. It's a ghost that's lingering on or a monster that was created. And so your whole purpose in the game is to either kill it or flee from it or hide from From it. Whereas in sci-fi and fantasy, the monster actually tends to be a resident of the fantastical world. So a species, for example, in a fantasy game, a species of sirens or a species of succubi or a species of vampires that are portrayed as creatures that exist and live in the world that, that you share, that they share with humans. Same with science fiction, the alien, right, is just another kind of being. Theoretically equal to humanity, they have their own planets, they have their own existences, they're a society. And yet these games centralize the human, specifically the usually straight white male slim able bodied human who then goes into the territories and and home worlds and areas, nests, caves, layers of these monsters, who again are often coded as female or all female species like sirens or succubi, and murders them. So in horror, the monster is a clear threat. And so you killing the monster is saving the day, returning the world to normalcy, which has its own set of problems and assumptions, But in science fiction and fantasy, you're literally murdering residents of the world that theoretically have every right to be there. Same as you, same as all the other humans. And so it felt more parallel to the kind of violence that occurs in our real world against real world groups who are marginalized, ostracized, and often have violence directed at them by dominant groups. And that really got me thinking and got me passionate about this project.
0: So that leads perfectly into my next question, because some and some of our listeners might already be asking this, why does it matter? Why? Why do these depictions in video games matter? It's just a fantasy. It's just make believe. That's how monsters have always looked. It's quote unquote, accurate to something. What's your response to that?
1: Honestly, that same question gets directed at people who study film, television, comics, literature. Uh, Why does it matter? And it's a good question because especially with games, a lot of people think, oh, they're just for fun or they're just for kids, both of which aren't necessarily true. There are a lot of games who the games that aren't really fun. uh, They're a slog to get through. But that aside, um, the idea of them being for kids isn't true either. The average gamer uh, is in their 30s. And games are one of the biggest media out there. They're very, they're huge. People play games all over the world, all ages, all types of games. And the audience for games is really diversifying and really spreading. And so the messages that are embedded in this, in these media, same as film and television, are important for us to question, to poke holes in, and to sort of critically analyze because they do uh, communicate ideology to a wide array of people, including young people who might be more impressionable, but honestly, people of, of all ages. Uh, and some of the most problematic behavior on the internet that we've seen in recent years has come from male gamers, Who have been raised with the kinds of games that promote misogynistic attitudes. Uh, And we see that play out. Unfortunately, we've even seen that with mass shooters in recent years, how they're embedded in gamer culture. And so the the questions that need to be asked this is not to say games are dangerous, games cause violence. We have enough um, studies showing that there is not actually a correlation between even violent video game play and violent real world behaviors. But we do need to ask ourselves what kinds of Assumptions and ideologies are these games promoting even like subtly, even sort of assumptions that we already have in our culture? What are they sort of remediating and and assumptions that are being made there? For example, a lot of the monsters that I study, such as, for example, um, succubi, sirens, vampires, uh, hags, witches, crones, things like that—they are common figures in fairy tales, legends, myths, right? And so the the misogyny that they represent, the hatred towards transgressive women, old women, fat women, sexually active women—there's something that has been around in society, global society, you see these in all cultures, all mythologies, almost around the world, especially the dominant ones. And so we're just telling the same stories, the same stories that uh, centralize a heroic white male who murders monstrous transgressive women. We see this with Perseus and Medusa and games are coming out still that remediate that same Medusa myth where you are playing as perhaps not Perseus exactly, but a Perseus-like figure and you're the one killing Medusa again and again and again. And so these questions in our society, they're they are so deeply Embedded in our culture, that game designers are looking at that and saying, Oh, yeah, let's draw on classical myths. That's a classy thing to draw on. That's a great source of inspiration. People are familiar with those stories. That's true. Those stories are familiar. Those stories are maybe comfortable. But when push comes to shove, what are those stories saying about the role of women? And what are those stories saying about the role of men? in relation to women, right, when it comes to centralizing violence and power and dominance.
0: And Medusa is a great example of the quote-unquote villain or monster um, with her own backstory.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So I I don't talk about Medusa too, too much in my dissertation because she has been unpacked by many feminist scholars, uh, though she does appear in many video games. But her backstory is that she was a rape survivor. She was raped by the god Poseidon in Athena's temple. She used to be a beautiful human maiden, renowned for her beauty. And uh, Poseidon pursued her. She rejected him. So he raped her, as was very common in Greek myth. And Athena, in her rage at having her temple defiled in this way, punished Medusa. So turning her into this venomous snake-haired monster who who turns people to stone when she looks at them, who is forced to live alone in a cave and eventually is murdered, decapitated, and then literally objectified when Perseus takes her head and uses it as a weapon himself against his foes. And so she's a rape survivor who is punished for her own rape, which unfortunately... In a less supernatural way, we see that narrative play out in real society with victim blaming and rape culture. So the question about Medusa, and there are different variations of that myth that tell the story a little bit differently, but the question of Medusa is an interesting one when it comes to reclaiming the monstrous, because there are some feminist groups who have said, no, we we are Medusas, like Medusa represents feminist rage against this, this injustice, and yet video games are still portraying her as a monster to fight instead of, for example, maybe letting you play as Medusa and, and work through her story experience, her story as the protagonist, which is a shame because games, because of this element of interactivity, the fact that you as the player are asked to embody a character in the nar- in the narrative, they offer the opportunity for potential empathy, for telling stories differently, for featuring or centralizing a different kind of character there are games where you can play as a monster you can design your own character and create a more monstrous a more monstrous character But even if you're playing as, say, a a queer monstrous woman as your main protagonist that you've created, you are still tasked with being a representative of patriarchal society and slaying monstrous women. So in some ways, you're forced to slay your own, which can be even more harmful in a lot of ways. Again, reflecting the way that society forces even the oppressed to embody normative ideology um, and internalize a lot of these these problematic ideas
0: even in games where you as a player might want to kind of break out of the mold, you're still being forced into some I don't know if traditional is the right word but um, some expectations of how hero and villain, Interact. You have to follow to some degree a prescribed route of this is what a hero does and this is what a villain does.
1: Absolutely. And that's part of what my work has looked at, looking at the concept of interactivity, because actually my work critiques it as a concept and sort of underscores why it's a little bit useless. Again, it's very underdefined, uh, or every definition has holes poked in it by some other scholar. Uh, So there's no kind of satisfying definition of the concept of interactivity and what it means. But also it's Kind of an illusion. And this is what my work argues is that we talk about interactivity and it's an intuitive term. We kind of know what it means, especially with new media, right? Digital media, you interact with a computer and so you need to have some kind of user input. In the case of games, usually you're using a a mouse and keyboard or a controller and you are using that to input instructions to the software running on your computer uh, or console, which is basically just a computer. And so, yes, technically interactive. The game needs you to press some buttons in order to proceed. But when it comes to the gameplay and story, everything is pre-designed by the developers by necessity, barring something that is say randomly generated or glitches, or if the player chooses to hack or mod uh, or cheat and break the game in some way, which most players don't have the technical skills to do that or, or the time and energy to do that. So they'll play the game as it was designed. And so it might be a game that seems to offer you choices. Maybe you have four dialogue choices you can make or, or you can choose to pick up one thing and not another or wear one piece of armor and not a different one. But when it comes to what you're expected to do, especially things like boss battles, which are usually convergence points where you maybe you had some options before, but now everything comes back to this main battle or this main event, you have to kill that monster to proceed if you come to that monster and for ideological reasons you say no this isn't right I shouldn't be murdering her for example I talk about motherhood a lot in my work and maternal monsters are a very common trope so these are monstrous women who often give birth to monsters litters of monstrous spawn Uh, and so they're often pregnant and they sort of embody our society's cultural revulsion disgust and like fear towards the power of female fecundity and so you murder her offspring and you murder her, sometimes she lays eggs, that kind of thing. So it's all a little grotesque. And so you might come to that scene as a pregnant woman playing or a mother playing and say, whoa, no, I'm not going to murder this pregnant woman. Like, yes, she's monstrous because she has, I don't know, wings or tentacles or fangs, but she's very clearly just a pregnant lady. Like, yes, a different species, but can we not have empathy for a pregnant being of a different species, especially in science fiction where friends or romancing aliens all the time anyway. And you might say, no, I don't want to fight her. I want to put down my sword. But if the game doesn't give you the option for mercy which very few games do especially for a boss battle that's tied to the main story your choice is either to proceed and murder her or to stop playing and you're barred from the rest of the game's content So the interactivity that games offer is really uh, limited in that regard. It is kind of an illusion in terms of if your ideas disagree with the developer's ideas, you don't have power in that regard, especially if you've already purchased the game, right, which is really the only power that players have unless you go on social media and complain. We've had fan campaigns that have said like, this is not okay, this is inappropriate, or this is offensive. And sometimes content gets changed or the next um, installment in the series is a little bit better. We've seen that happen, which is great. Players, I do encourage players to use their voice because the connection between developers and fans is a lot closer in games than it is in, say, film. You're less likely to communicate with a big film director, but you might actually have a Twitter conversation with a, a lead video game designer. Um, So I do recommend people having that conversation. But in the end, the game, the person who made the game is the one who made the game. You don't have uh, unlimited power over how the story unfolds, unfortunately.
0: So that then takes us into the question of who makes the games and the um, thorny issue, perhaps, or the hot button issue uh, sometimes in gaming culture um, about diversity in game. So what is the state of diversity in gaming, game development, game and fandom culture and kind of where does it go from here?
1: Yeah, that's a big question. And that's always the right question to ask when you're when you're talking about game content or content in any medium, uh, you then have to ask, okay, who produced this? Who's in the writing room, so to speak, or who's behind the camera? And yeah, in games, it's kind of a bad situation. In the big budget industry, the AAA industry, it's about seventy percent straight white male. So they do a lot of um, surveys looking at the demographics of their of their developers, um, and these are people who are level designers, creatives, programmers, coders, three D modelers, artists, um, all at all levels. And so if you look, uh, they actually do publish these reports that give you an idea of who's who in the industry and Canada and the US and the UK tend to be the ones that give the most uh, the most data there. And yeah, it it has gotten better. It used to be a much higher percentage, but it is still about seventy percent. Um, and those three categories will will shift a little bit, um, but pretty much seventy percent straight white and male in the in these Western industries again Canada, U.S. and U.K. who are making these games. And they're often of uh, a certain age, like in their thirties and forties. They have several of them have kids, that kind of thing. So it's it's a very kind of specific demographic and. I have argued, and several other game scholars other game scholars have argued in the past that part of the problem with the fact that we keep seeing the same kinds of problematic stories being told, not just they're drawing in for inspiration from classic literature or or myth or things like that. They also are wanting to make the kinds of games they grew up playing for nostalgia reasons, right? So they loved game X that came out in 1992 and they want to make that game again. And so the same kinds of problems that were happening in the early. 90s are being repeated and yes the graphics are much better but it's the same kind of story now with that said things are shifting there's a lot stronger of an independent game scene now people are finding ways to tell different kinds of stories by making games themselves or in very small studios There's a lot more um, accessibility in terms of the platforms and the engines that are used to make these games. So people can make games in Twine. People can access Unity and Unreal for free if they're like a a small, an independent person or a small studio. And so people, if they have the time and energy and, you know, disposable income to be able to to, to do this, are able to tell uh, new stories. And you see this on the various platforms that you can buy games, that there's a massive, massive number of games out there. Not all of them are great, but some of them are these indie darlings, these hits that have just found something unique. And sometimes it's in the in the mechanics, the gameplay, um, but a lot of time it's in the story. And sometimes, which is very exciting to me, they approach monstrosity in a different way. So something like Undertale, for example, is a very, very well-known, very critically acclaimed um, and successful independent game. And it tells the story of humanity versus monstrosity in a way that really centralizes empathy and centralizes this idea of what does it mean to be a human? What does it mean to be a monster? And maybe the humans aren't always the good guys. Uh, Maybe we can approach this idea of us versus them instead with mercy and kindness and understanding and empathy instead. However, still allowing the player to make their choices. So Undertale allows you to murder all the monsters if you want to uh, though it does find ways to make you feel very very bad about doing that so so these kind of interesting games that are show that people are thinking like hey maybe this us versus them this human versus monster isn't great or maybe it's way too superficial maybe we need to remember that especially in something like fantasy The monster is just another kind of person, a person who looks different than we do. And obviously, this says a lot about how we can approach the other, uh, whatever that means, in real world societies. That said, unfortunately, what that means is there's a a lot of burden being placed on individual game makers, these people who are making games in their spare time as a labor of love to tell these new stories while the AAA industry is very conservative, very risk averse. Again, because games take a lot of money and time to make. So they're a big um, investment. And a lot of the time, publishers, especially, rather than the studios themselves, the publishers really push a certain kind of bankable narrative or assume that the demographic of players is going to be young, straight white males who just want these typical kind of violent quote unquote heroic stories. And so change is really slow in the mainstream industry, which again is a shame because those are the games that tend to reach the widest audiences, same as as blockbuster films tend to be the ones that reach the widest audiences. So diversity in terms of hiring practices are starting to happen, but need to happen more. And diversity in terms of how the fans and the culture works is really important because until the culture shifts, the mainstream industry especially isn't going to really change and we've seen a few really extreme examples of exclusionary and violent harassment that happens within the fandom within games culture and even aside from like extreme organized harassment campaigns like gamergate we can also see microaggressions um just constant casual sexism and racism ableism that happens especially with online play and especially in certain fan communities But also even more subtle, just this attitude or this um, feeling that you're not welcome if you don't meet a certain mold. Like, okay, yeah, you can be a woman who plays games, but you have to be a certain type of woman who plays a certain type of games. You have to look a certain way, act a certain way, and you have to prove knowledge, like unquestionable knowledge. Like you have to prove you're one of us or one of the guys, right? Like it's gatekeeping. It's absolutely cultural gatekeeping. I do think things are getting better like i don't want to be completely critical like i tend to be critical in my writing but i also allow room for hope because baby steps things are getting better I think they they need to get better faster and in more extreme ways I don't necessarily know how to do that apart from more of what's happening more games that are telling different kinds of stories and a few AAA games have come out telling really interesting queer diverse stories centralizing women um, centralizing people who don't look like the typical traditional hero thinking something like the last of us part two which has its own problem Especially in relation to monstrosity, la la la, and things like that. But basically, studios and publishers need to have the courage to tell these kinds of stories, stories that maybe are a little bit more risky. Because it turns out to be very popular and, and very welcoming to people who didn't ever see themselves represented in games before or see themselves as gamers before.
0: So you mentioned the importance of the fans, of the players kind of giving their feedback in, in a very immediate way with social media, and that that relationship is a little bit different than fans of a movie, for, for example. And I'm just kind of wondering, what do you see as the relationship or the responsibilities, I guess, between the studios producing the game and the development of the fan communities. Because we see these issues flare up in fan communities. And you mentioned Gamergate, but there's kind of always, or or seems to always be be some kinds of issues um, that, that are being discussed. Do developers have a responsibility for what their fandom's doing with their material or how they're using it?
1: That's a really good question. On one hand, I want to say like, yes, of course, when you produce art in the world, if your art is problematic or is is reinforcing or encouraging uh, dangerous ideas, problematic ideas, or ideas that are even just like falling back on tired tropes and are really derivative and can be understood as, as, as oppressive or, or cruel or exclusionary to someone, then yeah, it's on you. But at the same time, an individual developer in a studio doesn't necessarily have that much power, and it can be very, very hard to to rock the boat and to push for change. Especially if you're a developer who is from a, has a marginalized identity. So, like if you're the the token black woman hire in the studio, it's really hard for you to make change, especially because the higher ups, the executives like who again all tend to conform to that dominant demographic they might just fire you for trying to make change or they might shut down your ideas or they might um find various small ways to quiet you to silence you or the publisher who's, you know, the big, the big thing, the big entity that is in charge of actually whether or not your game succeeds might just shut it down and say, no, this isn't what we're going to do. And so the power that an individual developer has is, it really depends. There are some who are kind of like, kind of like the equivalent of a film auteur how they have like they have cred you know in the in the industry or in the um in the community they might be able to do something uh, interesting a lot of those people end up leaving the mainstream industry and going indie uh to make the kinds of stories they want to tell which is problematic in its own way because it means that you know they've gotten rich off of whatever big budget production they made and then they're able to kind of trailblaze in this direction but what about the people who who didn't get rich um And aren't able to do that. And so individual developers don't necessarily have a ton of power, but developers all together do, which is why I'm a big, big, big proponent of unionization in the games industry, which unfortunately, again, is a slow process. There are a few studios around the world that have successfully unionized, and that's wonderful, but most aren't unionized, unfortunately. And so if you're someone who has an idea or has a complaint either about the games, the kinds of games that are being produced or even how you're treated within the studio... And we've heard
0: some stories about that.
1: Absolutely, yeah. a lot of people are saying games are finally having their Me Too moment because people are coming forward talking about sexism, racism, um, and even like straight up sexual assault happening within the industry, especially done by people who are those kind of auteurs I mentioned because they do have the power. And so it's it's really hard for you to say anything without risking losing your job. And then if you say anything publicly. It's really a 50-50 roll of the dice to see if you're going to be supported by the fan base or if you're going to be hated by the fan base. And so especially if you're, for example, a queer woman coming forward or a trans woman coming forward about your experience and what happened, you are opening yourself up to potential harassment. And these campaigns are organized and and thorough and can really ruin your life and so the the trade-off of speaking up as an especially as an artist or a writer a creative it might not be worth it and that's really really sad because it shows that a the culture the the dominant fandom culture has a little bit too much power in potentially ruining your life ruining your career and b the the industry itself is not set up in a way to make it safe for you to voice your object Or to to have uh, somewhere to go if something happened or for there to be consequences if someone did something really inappropriate. So on one hand, I do want to say you have responsibility as a developer. On the other hand, uh, it's tough. It's really tough. And also, once you put your art out there, fans will do with it what they will right? So you might be surprised that what you made people actually ended up hating and you thought it was going to be great. Or conversely, you didn't think it was going to explode in the way that it did. Or you produce something that you thought was just, you know, one thing. And then fans were like, Oh, this is this is clearly queer. Like we're reading this as like a queer empowerment narrative. And you're like, Okay, I didn't actually intend that. But I mean, you do you and this this happens where they're like, you know fans are like this is we love this because we see ourselves in it. And so yeah, once once you put your art out there, like you 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 can't control what happens with it. But yeah, there there are some responsibilities that developers need to have, more like studios and executives, publishers need to have in terms of the content they make.
0: It sounds to me as you're speaking that there's need for diversity work in both the fan side of things and the developer side of things and that that diversity work can't be left to the marginalized people they they need the the white allies to white straight male allies to step up as well
1: absolutely and i like allyship is so central especially if you are of the demographic that tends to have power and there you also have to think about the way platforms especially like social media platforms work in this regard like A lot of these things happen, for example, on Twitter, and Twitter needs to step up and have more responsibility in terms of keeping its users safe from harassment, right? So there's all of these levels of responsibility, and those who have power need to use that power to help those who don't have power, and especially in fandom, because we've seen this in every single medium. When the fandom expands and diversifies, there is a pushback. There's always a pushback from the people who were the hardcore old school traditional fans like I liked this before it was cool kind of thing. But once that sometimes extreme pushback passes, the diversification of the fandom is always beneficial for the medium for the growth of the medium and for its cultural acceptance. So for a long time, for example, even with film, it was seen as a sort of lower class kind of just entertainment for the masses. It wasn't seen as something that could be art. But then once people who actually like had some kind of cultural clout or started thinking about film, once people were able to enter into the film industry who were telling different kinds of stories, uh, were able to kind of have some success there, it became, oh, this actually is a compelling storytelling medium. This can be a medium that create that that for art, for artistic work. And I feel the same for games, right? A lot of games already, I would say are amazing works of art. Others are mass entertainment and that's totally fine. I like games that are fun, <laughs> you know, but I also want to emphasize that games don't have to be just for fun. Games can also tell a story that hurts, you know, it can tell a challenge. Challenging story, And even the nice thing about games is you can communicate the difficulties of existence in the mechanics. So I'm thinking of a game like Celeste, where a lot of people have read it as a metaphor for mental illness, um, mental health struggles, and the way the gameplay is, it's very challenging. But the way you engage with the game almost like reflects and represents the struggles of someone with, with mental health issues. And I think that's really exciting and shows that the more we diversify the medium in fandom as well, because the fans kind of determine whether a game is successful and lots of people play it. Right. But also in the, in the industry, both independent and, and AAA. And I, I kind of hope that the divide between those two softens and dissolves, because honestly, I think, the AAA industry can learn a lot from the indie scene and the indie scene, it's, you don't need to, because independent really just means like, usually self-published, but that can be really tricky for someone to publish on their own and just hope that, you know, the algorithm blesses them with, with their marketing and that they're able to be picked up by some, you know, famous YouTuber. Uh, so I think that there can be a lot of give and take between these industries. They don't need to be divided. And so people who don't have maybe the ability to enter in or the desire to enter into the AAA big budget uh, studio scene can still be able to tell stories that that touch people and that are meaningful to people. And again, use the specific aspects of the medium to tell the story in unique ways through gameplay, which is, is what makes what sets games apart. Really
0: That is a perfect segue um, into my next question, which is kind of coming back to Brock, because we have had graduates who have have gone on and our podcast listeners can uh, listen to our special episode from last season with our intern Mitch Kogan, who spoke with Adam Henderson, one of our graduates, who has gone on to uh, be a co-founder of of a game studio and producing games. So just a little plug there. So kind of bringing bringing this back to teaching and your work at Brock, I know that this is your first semester um, teaching, and I guess, what, what kinds of things are you looking forward to teaching? Um, I know our MA GAME program is, is in its brand new, very first cohort, which is so exciting. It's an exciting, it's a really exciting time, I think, to be joining us at ROC. So what are you looking forward to? to with your teaching, with your working with the students, maybe with the grad program?
1: That was a beautiful segue. Well done. Yeah, I'm so excited. Like I can't stress enough that this is literally my dream job. And I feel like incredibly fortunate to have gotten a position here at Brock because teaching in a game design program means that I can really focus on my specialization rather than say, if I got hired in a popular culture or communications or film program and just kind of dabbled in games or had to constantly do the dance of this is why games matter. Whereas here in this program, I can just really assume that people there at least understand that there's value in games. Um, obviously, students come in with different levels of experience, which is good. That's always a benefit. Uh, you don't want to have a class full of only hardcore gamers. <laughs> so everyone can share their experiences and their fresh perspectives. Uh, and it's nice to be able to, to jump right into the ideas and to help the students think about something they love or are fast by or interested in making in a new critical way. And that is my thing is pushing game design students or, or anyone who wants to get into the industry or anyone who already plays games or anyone who's even remotely interested in games, which I think everyone should be, of course, I'm a little biased there to think about them. Again, because they are an art form, they are an important uh, medium that communicates ideological messages in society, for better or worse, right? And I hope that as, you know, the, as we progress, we can make that for better right? I think that games for change is a really important aspect. So I focus a lot on social justice, which in the game world can be a little bit dangerous. Sometimes you get pushback, sometimes you get people who hear the word feminism and their hackles get raised right away. So far, it's only been a week, but so far I have not had that experience. The students have been very excited and very open-minded. And everyone at Brock tells me that, that the students are really great. And I'm very excited that they taking a game design program because you don't necessarily have to have a degree in game design to enter into the industry. But if you do, I feel like it gives you not only experience in having made games and worked together um, on projects, but it also gives you exposure to these critical ideas. And that's my job. And I'm, and that's why I was hired, right? To be this kind of critical social justice um, oriented feminist scholar who looks at games and pushes students to really think critically about the games they play, about the kinds of games they love or hate, and about the kinds of games they want to make, and to remember to ask themselves at every stage of the process, Why am I doing this? What messages is this going to communicate? And what does this mean for me as a a creative, a storyteller, a programmer, as someone who is interested in this medium? And so I am so excited about being here at Brock. I'm only teaching one course this term, and then two courses next term. So it's a nice sort of gentle introduction, but so far it's been delightful. The students are friendly and enthusiastic, and I'm really, really excited. And they all have looked at the syllabus and said, "Oh, I'm so excited about the games we're going to be playing," which is so nice to hear as a as an instructor. I've taught games before, but I think this is the most enthusiastic reception of my syllabus I've ever had, so that's a wonderful feeling. And yes, what,
0: uh, what is the course?
1: So the course I'm teaching this term is 1PO4, which is new media and games. So it's very perfect for me because it is talking about games as a medium and how they sort of have grown out of uh, other media and sort of lessons learned from other media, like the differences. We focus a lot on the the big, again, overused concepts like interactivity, engagement, immersion, things like that, while playing games that sort of give a, a historical overview of what games have been and what games can be. So I tend to pick games that are relatively accessible for my students. So not too expensive, not too long and not too difficult. They do tend to focus on storytelling because I really want to push them, even if they are not you know, they don't consider themselves the strongest writers or anything like that to really think about how games can tell stories, especially using gameplay and mechanics and not just, you know, cutscenes or something like that. Cutscenes are great, but games can offer more than just the cinematics. Uh, and so yeah they've they've really responded really well to the syllabus so far and basically it's a space for them to start talking and thinking about games in a in a serious way that shows that that games really do matter in society and that they should matter and even if you make something that you think is like okay this is just a little fluff game that's just for fun you'd be surprised at the kinds of messages you can communicate in games like that uh, and so I really really want to emphasize this kind of reflective critical thought on on the part of the students and i am very excited about the masters program because it's it's one of the only grad programs in game studies ever and so that's an opportunity for me to really dig into the critical theory with the students. Because of course, I, I don't assign too much critical theory for my first year students because it's it's a gradual buildup. But for the master's students...
0: You have to work your way up to dealing with theory. You don't you,
1: do. uh,
0: you don't jump into <laughs> university at, at 17, 18 or in first year and uh, <laughs> start uh, devouring theory.
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly. I, I don't want to scare them off, basically. But the master's students have, have the experience. And I think are are prepared for doing a lot more reading in conjunction with playing the games. And I'm very excited because it's a way for me to really dig into all of the amazing game scholarship that's out there. Because especially looking at questions of, of identity and diversity, there's so much amazing work. And I want my students to really have their eyes opened and to really think, okay. How can I contribute to this body of scholarship and really think of themselves as even if they do want to then go into the industry to think of themselves as budding scholars, critics, people who can really offer some unique perspectives, valuable perspectives on games. Um, and so the course uh, I'm teaching this year in the, um, the MA program is Constructing Identity in Games and Gaming Culture, which is Exactly, me and my work. So, I'm very excited. We're definitely going to have a week on monsters. I Uh, would expect nothing (laughs) less. So it's it's very exciting, and the cohort is seems really great, and it's a small cohort, which is ideal for a graduate program because they can all get to know each other and share their ideas and opinions in their seminars without feeling uh, nervous or worried. And uh, and we can kind of model the sort of ideal safe space of of discussion and even like friendly debate about what games are and what games can be. So I'm I'm thrilled, absolutely thrilled to be here. I can't emphasize that enough.
0: Well, we are very thrilled. To have you, and I am looking forward to further discussions um, over the over the coming years of your of your research and uh, watching what your students do and uh, and and who they become. It's very exciting to have this this program as well. And I'll put a link to some information about the MA program as well in our footnotes. Um, so that our listeners who might be curious can check it out. We've also um, have an interview, I think, from season one with Jason Horleck, whose uh, background was English and came to games through English studies. And as I mentioned, our special episode last series as well, where um, Mitch interviewed um, Adam Henderson. So um, lots of game-related content on the podcast, I guess, and lots of diverse stuff too, because even as we were talking, um, I was thinking of the conversation that I had with Christina Santos. can't remember the series off the top of my head, but if you look back in your podcast feed, you'll see an episode there on trauma and identity. And she does a lot of work or, and has done a lot of work with with monstrous women in other media as well. So humanities, as always, very interdisciplinary. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us, Sarah.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful.
0: We look forward to more, to more conversations. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Forward. Find our footnotes, links to more information, transcripts, and past episodes on our website, brocku.ca slash humanities. We love to hear from our listeners, so join us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Brock Humanities. Please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode. Forward is hosted and produced by Allison Innes for the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University. Sound editing by Serena Atella. Theme music is by Khaled Mam. This podcast is financially supported by the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University.